Happy New Year, OCD family community, and welcome. If this is your first time visiting OCD Family Podcast, well, thank you for joining us. We're glad you're here. And for my return fam, hey, (laughs) it's always a pleasure and an honor to gather with you again. So thanks for joining us because our guest, Ali Garza, is back with us this week. So you know the drill. Get comfy and get ready because Allie is about to share her heart once again and we are better for it. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent. And let me be the first to say, welcome to the family. The CD family, that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. So as I mentioned, Allie is our return guest today. She was with us last week and technically last year, seeing as last week was last year. (laughs) That never gets old for me. Somebody told me yesterday, like, that was a dad joke that I just heard my dad say. And I was like, yeah, I, I vibe with dad jokes. Allie really kept it real with us, and her vulnerability and willingness to tell her story has already started creating such an impact. I've heard from folks all over saying how much they appreciated and really felt the pain of the snowballing intensity of her OCD. So many people can relate, Allie. So girl, thank you, sis. The ripple effect of this is just getting started, and truly, what a gift that is. So today, we're talking about a few things. First, where we left off was Allie going into residential treatment for her OCD. And y'all, if you missed last week's episode, do yourselves a favor and pause, because you're going to want to listen to The Rising of the Fall, which, can I just say, I love that title. I was like, yes, Nicole, this has like graphic novel vibes all over it. And as it turned out, it was quite the psychological thriller. But Allie is back to talk with us about the experience of growing into her true self through a higher level of care and then returning back into her world, Allie 2.0, and trying to figure out what that meant. In the therapy world, we classify this process as stepping up, or stepping down in levels of care. So if you think of treatment as like a set of stairs, outpatient services would be at the bottom, which could be weekly or maybe even a couple times a week for a therapeutic hour or even half hour session sometimes. This step or maybe even a slight step up from that can include adding in medication support or for folks only participating in medication support, certainly adding in the therapy is a big need. That next step, though, it's a little bit higher up, and it might look like intensive outpatient treatment, which we also call IOP. We just love our acronyms here in OCD, IOP with ERP or ICBT. It's all the things, right? But 
IOP is where we're talking about multiple hours of a day where you're working on intensive concentrated therapy. And usually it's a couple times a week, if not all weekdays, but you show up in the morning or in the afternoon, it depends on the program, and you do a couple hours of that concentrated work, often as a group, sometimes individually as well, and then you leave. You go home for the night or you go to your Airbnb if you had to travel to access it, and you come back the next day. A step up from that would be residential, which is what we are talking about today. And similarly, that involves multiple hours of focused work, but usually even longer. So as Allie is going to tell us, she definitely had to do more than, say, three hours of work a day. But that's the next step up for residential. And then the top step, at least I would consider, is more of a partial or full-time inpatient hospitalization. And so the levels of care conversation is an important conversation because it's just as important, if not more important, to know when you're in over your head and need to take a step up in your treatment as it is to know when you need to step down. And while this is something important for you, the loved ones, partners, parents, to understand, as well as the OCD suffers so you can advocate for the treatment to match the need, it's definitely an important area for us therapists to understand as well. Sometimes, whether because of access, money, or other life stressors, a person may need a higher level of care, but they just can't manage it right now. And for those situations, Keeping an eye on the goal of helping that person be able to access that need, that is one of our primary goals. So we can continue with outpatient work in the meantime, but we shouldn't just settle. If we have cancer, we don't just settle for going to our GP versus an oncologist. But a lot of times there's resistance with mental health treatment because the stigma of I must really be crazy if I need that or weak or hopeless if I can't just do this on my own, if I need more help, all of that can creep in. Or as we'll talk about in today's podcast, the cost can sometimes be quite prohibitive for these higher levels of care, insurance or not. And arranging time off of work or away from family, away from roles that will create more work and more struggles for everyone else. Oh, the shame is real. But the reality is when we're talking about these higher levels of care, people aren't able to just fill their roles at home, fill their roles at work, fill their roles in their relationships. They're psychologically drowning and working on learning or unlearning and relearning how to swim. That's going to help not only you, but all of those roles, all of those relationships people worry about inconveniencing. But even more than that, you, your loved one, the OCD warrior, you're worth it. So let's get this conversation going because Allie continues to do a beautiful job of helping us understand what this process was like for her. So we have Allie back with us today. Allie, thank you so much. You have been just really transparent and open with the OCD family community regarding your experience and your journey with OCD from going, actually having a diagnosis earlier on, which is, I feel like, more rare, but not having any context for what that means or why that's significant or what resources are available. And really the journey that led to 
getting to a higher level of care. And I think that the gradual process of things snowballing to the point of realizing like a higher level of care is needed is a helpful journey for people to relate to. Given, you know, that's a privilege. Yeah. Not very accessible for nearly anyone, but right. I you know I was lucky enough to have the resources through my parents to go to residential, especially so a residential and God did I need it. It was really like truly learning how to be a human again. I did six hours, I think, of ERP every day. Even on weekends? Because some of these residential I am. Wake up. Residential. They're like, oh, we're playing dodgeball today. Yeah. But you know what? So you're bringing up a really important point. A, that not everybody can afford to make that trip, whatnot. And so you're recognizing that you were privileged to be able to access that because access can be a huge issue. But even for a person that could access it, you still had to travel across many states to be able to access it. And I think that's a fear, especially when you're in a state that does not have a treatment program or facility or, you know, at best it's a couple hours away. But a lot of these situations, like here in Indiana, we don't have a treatment facility. Intensive outpatient doesn't even really exist for OCD. And the psychiatric hospitals don't understand OCD. So it's problematic. But to say to a family, whether with a young kid or yourself as an adult going, okay, traveling, traveling across state lines or for some people, maybe even traveling to another country to try and access that care is really hard. And so for you, you were and for a lot of people, they feel like this is if I'm going to live, then this has got to be it. But I'm sure it was still hard to make that decision considering you were having so much anxiety around being in the car and traveling and walking down the street even. And now it's like, sure, if you can just get to Houston. It was also like, you know, this is coming from me, the same gal who, gosh, like five years prior was waking up at 3 a.m. to drive through the night. Like, I'm not like just based on my values. I sure as hell was not going to be a type of person that wanted this life I was living. And I was willing to do anything. I'd already been through hell and back a few times. And I was, you know, given also, it's a fan favorite when you show up for OCD treatment, especially a higher level of care. Is this even going to work? Like, well, what if this doesn't work for me? Like, what is this? Blah, blah, blah. And I mean, though, I was like, I have shit to do. Like, I got my freaking master's and I sure as hell didn't get that to sit here, like worried to watch a drug commercial. Mm -hmm. To not, like, I have things I want to do. You know, me and my husband were planning on you know like this was season of life that we were going to become foster parents mm-hmm. it's finally going to start my career and i was like and that's why i wanted to do residentials but i know it's gonna be how i can very well just end up back in the place i was flying from san francisco to denver but i was gonna do it one way or another because the hell i was living was so incongruent with who i was right right and good for you because it is It's a protective factor, and I I think it's important for the community to hear this, is a protective factor when you can say, like, I don't want to live this life. And I don't mean it in a way of, like, then it's over. I mean it in a way of realizing that there is something worth fighting for, even if you fear that it's not going to happen for you. 
because it's part of what helps you to keep fighting when those days are hard. And so you were able to lean into that. So you went to McLean and I'm sure the process getting there was pretty rough considering how heightened your OCD was. Yes. Oh, bless my psychiatrist and therapist. It was like, you know, my psychiatrist was like, just get there as late as you possibly to not give your chance for a rumination. I got round the clock clonopin just to carry me through to Houston. I was like, oh my gosh. I was terrified. That funny enough, when I got on the plane, OCD was pretty chill. OCD was adequately sedated. It sounds like <laughs> I was like, I'm just going to take a nap because we're about to do some ninja warrior work here. So, like, oh, where is that? Where's the fear of the air parts? Nowhere? Great. Life and Nikas? Do I shake her well? Right. Right. I know. It probably means I was miraculously healed here. Like, my, my brain system. Yeah. So, you got to McLean. You went in. How long were you in residential treatment for? Two months. Two months. And you said six hours a day for two months. Yep. That's intense. And important at that level, it, it may sound like a lot, but at the same time, you're dealing with the thoughts every waking moment. And so really having a lot of support to fight the resistance to that anxiety and distress, to support leaning into those intrusive thoughts. And anybody who's never gone through like ERP therapy let alone intensive ERP therapy, like just getting a little taste of it, the flavor of it. They're like, wow, that that feels really counterintuitive and inappropriate. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because you're saying this thing that I've I've built copious coping mechanisms to try and survive. We're just going to do the opposite, basically, and lean into the absolute worst fear and then some. Yeah. No, thanks. But at the same time, your brain is getting stuck because of that thought compulsion loop, which we've talked a lot about here on the podcast. This was the only option. This was the only choice. So it's, it can be hard to decide to go, especially when it's multiple states away. And it was for you, certainly. And it is for most people. So it is, it's understandably a big commitment. Yeah. So I was down in Houston at the McLean institute down there hop i'll refer to it as because the uh, name for it before mclean page scooped it up or whatever was the houston ocd program and i was down there from uh march 1st i think until the last day of april so two months i think it was like six hours a day every day uh warp week so yeah boot camp yeah boot camp and if you're listening to this and you've never experienced ERP, and we talk about it quite a bit here on the podcast, but can you give us an example <laughs> of how an ERP exposure might work in everyday life? And then we can think about that in context of six hours a day, just to give people some perspective. Yeah. So... In everyday life, oh, natural exposures that we're going to call them. Like, uh -huh. for example, I'll be driving and taking a route. And I know there's like one road I could take that would pass by a cemetery. And I know that that would spike my anxiety as far as thoughts about death, illness, harm. It's all under that umbrella conveniently. And so intentionally choosing to drive by a cemetery. Sometimes I've even just driven in and just taken a lap around. 
So that's an example. Or, you know, before I went to hop, I couldn't even watch TV with the risk of like prescription commercials coming up. Mm -hmm. And then during hop, I was watching, you know, ER after dark. Like, I mean, I had to reweave Grey's Anatomy back into my schedule, which was a values-based activity. Dr. McDreamy and McSteamy. I've never actually watched it, but I've heard it's, uh, there's Mick doctors, but. Yeah, that much the lines with my values and had to be. Yes. Yes, just watching videos, shows, doing things in person. The cemetery was a fan favorite, driving by the ER, sitting in the ER parking lot, and in imaginal scripts. So writing scripts, which luckily BuzzFeed has given me Plenty of things to go off of, like, you know, when you're scrolling through and it's like, if I would have listened to this ER doctor, I'd be dead right now. Oh, yeah. That's always, that's, that is just, you know, helpful beyond measure, right? And you can find all sorts of that on the internet, which is fortunate for us in terms of, you don't have to spend money necessarily to be able to confront certain things. But I think what, Ali, you're speaking to is doing the opposite of what your OCD would have you do. Because if driving by a cemetery would trigger a whole host of intrusive thoughts, then you're going to drive by the cemetery. Can you talk about, and that's definitely exposure, the exposure piece. And so when you would get there, what would you do with your thoughts to help with the response prevention? Because I think people often will do exposure and then they're like, that was terrifying. And part of why this treatment is so helpful and effective is that response prevention. So what would you do when you were in the cemetery or when you were driving by it, for example? At the beginning of ERP, it required a lot of support of like, my brain was so hardwired to just engage from the get-go in Mm -hmm. mental conditions of what I like, kind of these mental safety nets of like, yeah, I'm in the cemetery, but this will happen to me or this can't happen. So instead learning how to have those thoughts pop up and instead of like getting in a debate with them of like why that's not possible, just even allowing the thoughts to pop up and be like, but maybe it is. Maybe I maybe, you know, I do have this disease. Maybe I will swerve and die. And just even tolerating the whatever percent possibility. Because I would love to argue with my OCD and it would love that as well. Being like, yep, that's a thing. Yeah. Arguing with the what ifs, you you try and give yourself a a seemingly factual statement and whether it's fact or not, OCD does not give a shit. In fact, it has a very invested amount of shit in screwing with whatever you've provided it. So I guess maybe I should say it that way. It gives a big shit as long as it's it's shit. (laughs) And so, yeah. Nothing like a beautiful shit analogy to help us wrap our brain around it. But you would not only go to the place that would trigger the thoughts, you would go to the thoughts, the core fear behind them, and you wouldn't reassure yourself. You wouldn't say, yeah, I'm never going to need this or just because I thought of this, you know, disease that might have killed somebody. And sometimes gravestones, I don't know how often you kind of go this deep into it will tell you the cause of death and stuff and so you could be like oh what if that happened to me it could yeah it could and if you've never done erp you might go that sounds terrible why would i ever want to do it but there's actually freedom available in saying yeah i could embrace the uncertainty 
everybody so far that I've known across centuries has died at some point. I'm going to do it too. And at this point, like, I don't, just because I have a thought doesn't mean I'm dying, but it doesn't mean I won't die someday. And I fortunately don't have to hold the weight of that every stinking minute of the day, which is what OCD would have you do. And so it's it's very, very tough. It's intense therapy. And so now with that context, and, and I appreciate that example for sure. And I, I get some OCD intrusive thoughts around driving. It's because I was going through a lot of health stuff a couple of years ago. And I would just start to think like, what if you like pass out and you could accidentally hurt yourself or somebody else, right? So I'd always drive in the right lane on the highway if I had to get on the highway. I would tell myself I'm getting on the highway. I'm going to do it, even though that's extremely scary. I need to go on it, but I really would struggle with this. I would always tell myself, like, you can get off if you need to. In fact, you can get off on the surface street. And the feeling of, like, panic that fills the body, even though I was, like, constantly exposing myself to it. And so being able to not engage and going, yeah, I probably will die. And to think I didn't even get to have sex one more time or ice cream or, you know, like, but it does get me out of that appointment next week. And I was really looking forward to parent-teacher conferences are coming up. That gets, that gets to be a thing. And so I, I could then instead kind of sass back my OCD. So I don't have to argue with it, but I could be like, yeah, there might be some benefits to this, you know, oh, well, I didn't get to say goodbye to my kids, but I also didn't have to unload the dishwasher in the end. So I guess there's that. And those are the kind of things I would say if I was going to say something instead of you can get off on the next exit, you can pull over ultimately if you need to, if it's going to be about your safety or somebody else's. And I just realized like this thought doesn't define me, but you could feel it in a really real way. So now if we kind of think about being at hop and having that kind of exposure Six hours a day, not always on the same intrusive thoughts, sometimes staying in a certain place because that's where OCD is fixating, but also it could be a a myriad of different things that you're working on. So can you describe what that process was like? First of all, going into residential, did you have any family accompanying you to help you get in? Yeah. Is it Carly? No. Okay. Carly was there. That was my husband. Like Carly did shoes be a part of my life adrian did so he was the one lucky enough to take me down the houston from portland truly by the grace of god and clawing up him alone um, okay. my son there so i got down there oh my gosh yeah i have no idea honestly how i did it i mean truly yeah by the grace of god clawing up in. Clawing and, up in. yeah that can be helpful and you did say surprisingly you weren't as freaked out as you almost always were ocd was being a little quieter which then can also be like is this really what i need am i making too much of this yeah you know it's kind of wild to me how predictable ocd is like for myself but also like across other folks with ocd so i think like when you roll up to hop there's kind of some fan favorites like lines that go through like the process of grief or the process of anxiety just ramping up so of mm-hmm. course along the way yeah suddenly i'm on the plane and i'm like oh my gosh i'm not sweating bullets and thinking i'm gonna throw myself out i'm healed mm-hmm. i'm about to drop this money where all i needed to do was just get on this plane but then you know i get off the plane and okay fine then going into residential there's so many layers of like the guilds 
the guilt of like, I am about to do this treatment and it is going to be so incredibly expensive. Mm-hmm. Now, me and other folks there, we just were crying. The week. This is a down payment on a house. This mm-hmm. is a down payment. I am doing this simply to eat something other than boiled chicken and leave my house and be able to watch TV. I am putting a down payment on my house into my mental health. Mm-hmm. You know? And that's a lot. But when you think about it, is it worth your life? Yeah, it's absolutely a down payment, but it's a lot. And so wrapping your mind around that and I think even with some other procedures, medical procedures, so inflated and whatnot on what you could owe. But if someone were if a doctor were like, you need heart surgery, you'd probably be not be like, I feel so guilty about the heart surgery. You'd be like, I hope I live and okay, and you would figure it out. But it feels different sometimes when you're going into mental health because I think one, at least one of the thoughts behind that is I should be able to do this without fill in the blank, the shoulds. I mean, we should all over ourselves, and it gets very, very tricky. So you guys collectively, as you were coming in, as people were coming in, you noticed this line of grief and, and guilt. Mm-hmm. And then the classic, is this going to work for me, mm-hmm. right? It's like a lot. I mean, I had done maybe three or four outpatient ERP appointments, you know, like I had barely dipped my pinky toe in into what I mean, I was 26, 25, something around there. Mm-hmm. Um, years of no ERP treatment, lots and lots of other types of mental health treatment. But I was like, how is this going to be different? Am I going to be the exception? Mm-hmm. Am I, I that far gone? Or is my case that different? Yeah. I have some elements to my case that made it a lot trickier, specifically like having harm OCD and having it hooked onto themes around suicide. Very, very tricky that there was conversations at the beginning of like providers who are well-versed in OCD and myself trying to tease apart like, What's OCD? What's a risk question? Which is so not fun for anyone navigating. And it was OCD. Yeah. And we, you know, we, I'm such a great point. We've talked about this on the podcast before. Just because there's harm OCD does not mean you're suicidal, but it can. And just because you're suicidal doesn't mean there's harm OCD, but it can. And so teasing now are these thoughts egocentric, in sync with my values or are they egodystonic, out of sync and I'm terrified that I'm going to do this. And that can be around suicide or harm to others. But at the same time, there can be a zone where bits of both apply. There is, I'm so afraid that I'm going to do this, but it would be so much easier if I never woke up to not have to deal with this every day because it's torture. And so when it goes into this zone of, yes, there's definitely egodystonic thoughts, but there's egocentonic thoughts as, as well. I think the best thing you can do is treat it accordingly, right? Because any egocentonic thoughts about suicide, we certainly want to have a safety plan in place for. But you were already, as you said last week, at the point of going into hospitals very readily. (laughs) Or if you consult, they're like, go in, win a doubt, go in. You're like, okay, well, it's not just me. Everybody's telling me to go in. But now when you're in residential, fortunately, you have a team there that is going to be monitoring risk and also being able to 
confront the intrusive thought piece, but that's a pretty terrifying place to be. Absolutely. It's terrifying out on your own, but it's certainly terrifying where you're in kind of like boot camp of facing all of this as well. So I, I thank you for bringing that up. So what did that end up looking like as you kind of got into the intensive treatment? I mean, the first week or two, I was living at a son's 10, like for the subjective units of distress. I was top max, like distress. Yeah. And it was really freaking hard. I mean, Jesus, can't even like the amount of my life was controlled. Like, I think my, you know, my scale, my OCD scale, it like goes up to 40. I think I was like 39. Honestly, I, I would love to get my scales from hot, but like my entire life was consumed from the moment I was awake to, I mean, I was going to say the moment I went to sleep, but I didn't sleep, mm-hmm. but like around the clock compulsion. So it was so much just like fear, mm-hmm. terror, but also like I wanted so badly to have my life back. Mm-hmm. This was, I had been psychological hell mm-hmm. for so long. And it was like, it just can't get, I mean, in my head, it was like, it can't get worse than this. I mean, the worst case scenario is that I'm dead. And like, I've already been spending months trying to prevent that from happening. So, you know, at the very beginning, like, you know, I talk about the cemetery. That was uh, many, many, many weeks and hours of ERP in the making. Like at first, I remember one of the first days, one of my exposures, because I refused to have any food that had any sort of essence of caffeine. I made myself gluten-free, dairy-free by choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, out of fear that I developed allergies. So the whole crew was going on a delightful little behavioral activation trip down to the local coffee shop. I think this was my first week, right? Uh-huh. And it was also COVID, so we couldn't go inside. So the counselor, like the residential counselors had to go in in order for us. Oh my God, you sound. I got some control issues up in here. This might be problem. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, the residential counselor went in to get me my I, I wasn't even drinking decaf, but that was my exposure was to drink a decaf iced snow latte. And so she comes out. There's no marking on the cup that she says my name and that it's decaf. And so she hands me my latte. I'm like, did they pay them? They pay the They boys. did that on purpose. Yes, I love it. I'm smiling here. You can't see me, you guys, but I'm just like, that is such an ERP therapist move. So I'm standing on the sidewalk, me in my OCD crew that don't know me yet. And I'm holding this coffee cup, weeping, crying, mm-hmm. full-blown panic attack, being like to the resident counselor, I really just want you to go in and ask them to remake it with the marking. I really want you to do that. I want you to do that so bad. I really want this to happen. And I'm not going to ask you to, but I'm really not having a good time. <laughs> I don't want to offend you or push you, but damn right. it, <laughs> the coffee. Please make sure it's decaf. Please, you know, that, and that's like, that was the way that my OCD spiraled, right? I was drinking lattes, no problem, a year prior. And then suddenly it was like, well, I had heart palpitations one time, so let's go decaf. Oh, well, then I had it. Let's do hot chocolate. Oh, and then I had them. So no hot chocolate, no chocolate, you know, and it's just, that's how my world got so small. So mm-hmm. holding my, hopefully, fingers crossed, decaf iced latte was absolutely terrifying to me because in my head, if it's not decaf, I'm going to get heart palpitations. I'm going to have a heart attack and I'm going to die. And also I'm in Houston. I don't have my go-to hospital here. It took, you know, I was researching. First, at the beginning, I had them marked on my 
on my Apple Maps. Um, uh-huh. Brain was doing all the loop, like all the planning. Did you get to keep your phone when you were in residential? Oh, yeah. Okay. So you could still see where all the hospitals were. Oh, yes. Yeah. And that was the thing is that like, it was like, I'm glad I did. I had my, like, it's like, that's real life, right? You have to be able to, it's an information source. And mm-hmm. it's a connection to a lot of things, but you got to be able to know how to, you got to be able to live with it. It's completely unrealistic yeah. if not, because then that would be a whole nother tier of, of getting out of residential treatment oh. going, how do I deal with having the world at my fingertips again? And like Hop itself is like this beautiful house in this neighborhood in Houston, right? So it was very, it was a house. It was homey. I mean, huge freaking house that's for sure but like it was real life and i was walking around the houston neighborhood they must wonder like all of us walking around with our airpods weeping or like okay well they're just the ocd crew there you know hopefully they're fine yeah no i mean near my grad school i remember there was a transitional house for people coming out of substance use recovery programs and inpatient programs and I think you get to know, like, hey, that's, you know, th- those are our neighbors. But fortunately, I think the neighborhood was very loving and accepting of whoever was coming in and out because it meant people were working hard on themselves. And fortunately, there was not a stigma around that. But yeah, it probably felt more like natural real life setting. But also that's scary then because natural real life setting had gotten so small, had gotten so confined. And isolating. So actually needing to engage and being prompted to participate in real life is very, very scary. For for sure. And I mean, especially with my themes, my go-to safety behavior was going to the hospital. Mm -hmm. And so actually at the beginning, I was like, oh my God, just take me to the hospital. Like that was actually so relieving in my mind with harm and health OCD is like, take me to the hospital. Don't let me have anything in sight that I can hurt myself with that can make me sick. Like that was very relieving to me. And I was like part of that's what it was the delicate dance of me and the providers. Although I had the delightful extra layer of the heightened sense of urgency that comes with being the OCD patient and being like, do is that what I need to do? Is that what I need to do? And then, you know, taking the time to slow the rule with them and be like, okay, let's tease this apart. Do you want to die right? Do you want to tell suicide? No, I really don't. It's like, okay. Well, that sounds egotistonic. <laughs> right. I mean, oh my gosh. Also just like being a therapist in treatment, mm-hmm. it's like being a surgeon getting surgery on you. Mm-hmm. Plus that cool or residential counselor that was like one night, you know, I am just in the peak of my hormones at the beginning being like worried I'm going to act on suicide. And she starts, so have you ever had that? Like, Please don't go to the Columbia with me right now. It's not a good plan. Please. Oh, God, not the Columbia. Yeah. I mean, it's very interesting. Yeah. When you're, you're seeing someone that is a therapist or you're going to your therapist and getting treatment because we're people too. And yeah, I'm, I'm sure we are a special sort of client in terms of how we can really get in our heads about clinical content and know all the right things and yet have such a disconnect when it comes to how physiologically we're experiencing that and emotionally and all of that. But I'm sure it also made that residential counselor learn a lot as well, you know. She's probably like, oh my gosh, can someone else 
Oh, she's on to us. Right. Ask them for her scale. They want, she's asked to, you know, I, I literally just called them like a few weeks ago because I was like, I really want to know what my YBOS scales were before and after. And we're like, is this a safe behavior? I know it's been two years, but like, what, what is she? Yeah. Why do you want to know? Are we information seeking or reassurance seeking? <laughs> yeah. Is it? <laughs> Right. I don't know. She's like, damn it. What? I don't know. But yeah, so in residential treatment, you were not going to be able to hop, skip, and jump over to the ER at any given moment. You have some autonomy and freedom. Can you speak to a little bit? I mean, obviously, you got to keep your phones. Like, you could choose, and I, at any point, all of us, we have the right to choose to stop treatment. But what kind of freedoms did you have to kind of work with and kind of work to kind of control your compulsions around? Because it wasn't like you were in an inpatient unit where the doors are double locked and even a visitor can't even have a cell phone, let alone you. Clothing needs to come in a brown bag and checked for, you know, pills, knives, substances, whatever reassuring notes whatever it is you know and and this is a different setup you're in a house you're more in reality so you know in terms of especially for people that have thought maybe about residential but kind of are imagining the psych hospital where they're going to be confined to a room and nurses station outside the door what kind of freedoms did you have available while you were in residential treatment and how did that play into your treatment strategies of managing OCD without, you know, completely just leaving, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, and frankly, like anyone that goes for this particular program or just in general, it's like the ball is in your court as far as how much or how little you want out of treatment. For me, just because of my personality type, for better or for worse, I was like, scared absolutely shitless weeping round the clock like my eyelids were swollen mm-hmm. but like i it so freaking bad i don't know it, it took a minute for you know the folks to learn my personality then of like i don't know she is i mean i was born to debates i was born to talk and like so it was there was but like it was out of genuine like i really want to understand what i'm doing and i really want to i desperately want help mm-hmm. but i was doing the work that's for sure but it was hell at first and i very well could you know i'm in the house i have my phone yeah we gotta be awake and at it at 7 a.m and we got a full day from 7 a.m till 4 p.m every damn day pretty much except for the weekends of treatment round the clock erp like like locks are like you do your exposures you do ba and behavior activation for me was like gosh what was it I think that's hard too because I didn't really have hobbies I was like well I talk for fun and the therapist I call people and I had to do a little creativity around coming up with hobbies but I could have just tapped out but I so desperately wanted it and I had shit that I wanted to get back to and you know I just graduated two months prior with my master's in social work I had been working you know at a crisis line for teens and I so desperately wanted to get back to that Mm-hmm. I wanted to become a foster parent. And I was like, well, damn, now you're going to probably have to drive a car if you're going to have a teenager living with you. Mm-hmm. There are very real things that like, I want to be able to leave the house because I'm not a homebody. Mm-hmm. I want to, to drive. I want to be able to eat foods. I want a damn ice vanilla latte. And I want it now. Yeah. And there was a lot of buy-in. 
there's TVs in the house. There's, you know, it's beautiful in there. there. You walk around the neighborhood, you a gigantic dining table in the outside, mm-hmm. you know, in the spring in Houston. I could have just whatever, like done whatever, but like I, I was there for a reason. Mm-hmm. And so I really wanted, I mean, in fact, that was the harder part for me was the compulsion of like, I want to rip it off like a bandaid and be done. I want to be perfect now. And I'm like, that's nice, honey. It's a sweet story. And I'm glad you're feeling like storytelling because we're going to do yeah. some scripting. Like, three weeks I'm done. And they're like, oh, queen, you're only eating boiled chicken right now. And so, uh, wow, it was a lot. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point to highlight because I think sometimes when people think of residential treatment, they think of it being very, very confining, especially maybe if they've had an inpatient experience. But even if they haven't, it's not like media always portrays things like perfectly when it comes to mental health and some of the thoughts, fears and stigmas around that. And so I think that that's helpful. You're not going to be micromanaged. OCD is the micromanager. We're trying to get freedom from micromanagement. So you're going to be put in zones where you're confronting things and that's hard. But ultimately, you get to choose how you respond to it. And I think that's pretty huge because it's important for people to understand they're not like shackled to a room and you have to sign in and sign out and there's double security and all this stuff. It's like, it's it's a safe place, but certainly you have freedom. And really, the point is to help you to be able to connect with your freedom more because the prison, the micromanaging prison has been the OCD. Absolutely. In fact, and it's like wild to think that actually at the beginning of treatment, that's what I wanted. I was like, shackle me to the wall, put me in it straight. That was like what my OCD so desperately wanted. Mm-hmm. It was actually so freaking terrifying to experience that freedom, you know, and to like trust myself with that freedom. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, apparently, like, there was so much shock at the beginning of like me researching inpatient places, being like, I just need to be able to keep myself safe, blah, 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 blah. But like, I, uh, and so much urgency. Mm-hmm. But it was, I just so terrified because I so desperately want to live and thrive. And, so, yeah, I'll never forget also at HOP, don't quote me on this. I think they can take up to eight patients at a time, all adults. In my HOP crew, the other people that were in treatment with me have become some of the best friends of life. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, we had a very specific, niche, quirky, shared experience. Mm-hmm. And these things I was talking about, like the fans, favorite lines of like, is this going to work for me? do I even have OCD or am I lying to all these people? Mm. Like, a lot, like we all to a certain degree have had the same thoughts, uh-huh. same, very different themes popping up. Like, oh, we got contamination. However, there I'm the harm and health gal just right down the hall. You know, it's like mm-hmm. all very different content, but it all boils down to the same sneaky beast. Right. Right. And so, of course, also the thrill of all of us trying to seek reassurance of each other and that became so fun like once you were like a more seasoned ocd person uh-huh. and so i mean they're like have you ever had this and i'm like are the same she's on it she sends it with me too mm-hmm. uh, yeah so that works that yeah and you know it's i would imagine in a way it's almost like people that serve together you know in war 
or whatnot, you know, it's like you are on the battle lines together. And whether your function and role in those battle lines varied or were exactly the same, you build a camaraderie. And all of you had risks coming at you and you were there to fight for your lives and you did. And so I would imagine, yes, absolutely. Having some of the best friends and kind of soul sisters, soul brothers available, I'm sure, because it's so powerful to be seen and Mm -hmm. first discovering yourself outside of OCD and then to be seen and understood by somebody else. And that's part of the reason why we like to talk about joining support groups or connecting with people at trainings whether or conventions at conferences because it really is powerful when somebody else can say not only do I see you but I get it I have been there and that's that's a whole lot that's a whole lot it's very powerful having that kind of just ability to be seen. So I think that makes a lot of sense. What were kind of the goals that you were trying to reach to know that you would be graduating the program? What was kind of the, and I'm sure they're individualized across different people, but what was the benchmark that you were aiming for to be able to go back home? I mean, truly it was like every area of functioning, getting back to like the baseline. Like I wasn't driving, I wasn't eating or drinking anything aside from these very specific things. The biggest thing that was the compulsion slash safety behavior boys is a hospital. Like that was something that, holy shit. Like I remember, I think it was a week or two or maybe three in and I would wake up in the middle of the night sweating in a full-blown panic attack, convinced per usual that I was having a heart attack. And this one time in particular, I woke up in a complete sweat being like, I want to go to the hospital, I want to go to the hospital. And it was like this angel and a devil on my shoulder moments where at four o'clock in the morning, I'm like, am I going to do it? What am I going to do? Oh, what ERP and what like treatment is telling me to do. And I know what I've done all along. And truly, I wish, gosh, there was a camera. I mean, that would be unethical. But like, I wish there was an camera on me in this moment because literally half of my body was hanging off the bed, like being like, let's go to the ER right now. And the mm-hmm. other half of the body was like on the bed. And I had to choose in that moment. I was like, all right, I'm going to lie here until I either truly have a heart attack and like, and I am uncomfortable enough that I'm like, whatever, have certain things that I need to go or I'll fall asleep. Mm-hmm. And it's like, and I'll miss it. Mm-hmm. And I did. My arm was incredibly numb. And I think about my roommate. I was like, blessed that one for just being like, oh, yeah, she's just chilling. She's, you know, she's, she's doing something. It's a life or death situation. Yeah. And it feels like a life or death situation, but. I believed it. Yeah. I believe there was, my brain was like, there is a 99% chance I'm going to die. Mm-hmm. But there's this 1% chance that maybe I'll just go to sleep and that this is truly the start of me doing something new and honestly and when you're at that point i've been trying my way Mm -hmm. for a while now Mm -hmm. and or really ocd's way it wasn't my way and so that was a huge one i mean it became like my equivalence of like an aa token of like how long i can go Mm -hmm. without going to the er and i mean we'll get to this later but like yes i've been to the er since then i mean that's the thing too is that like 
there was this balance of like, just because I have health anxiety doesn't mean I'm never going to have a health emergency. Right. What that look like to quote, get a normal amount of medical attention. And so I was relearning in every area of my functioning. What would a typical person do with these symptoms? And also even if a typical person would be like, you have heart palpitations, Bill, what's the dance of response prevention of like, how far can I push myself to push OCD, mm-hmm. right? Right. Risk. Maybe it's not. And then what, at what point would that be a normal response? So a lot of just unlearning and relearning pretty much across the board of every area of functioning in my life. Yeah. And it, it's really hard because the point that you're making and we have to sort through when we're working in treatment is, you know, certain things, certain compulsions are things that we do and that are promoted for us to do to live a healthy lifestyle or to engage in, you know, if you're a religious person, to engage in your religion. There's going to be certain practices or there's just a number of different things as a mother you're going to have to do or a parent for your child, even if you're scared that you might do harm or do something wrong. And so for, you know, for example, like hand washing, what's reasonable? Okay, so I've gone into this obsessional fear and I'm doing it in excess to try and counteract that fear or to minimize, neutralize or avoid that fear of what could happen if I didn't wash well enough. But also we're still like, you know, floating out of a pandemic here and the CDC is going to tell you absolutely wash your hands and you're going to go anywhere and they're going to say, please wash your hands and you're going to go to the bathroom and think, yeah, that's reasonable to wash my hands. And so really being able to find like, where is that line of what do most people do in response? Most people per the CDC might sing happy birthday while they wash their hands, although I would argue maybe most people don't do that. (laughs) They maybe do it for seven seconds or something. And so giving yourself that limit and saying, okay, that's what I'm going to do. And that's going to be as terrifying as not washing at all in the beginning. And it's a real journey. And it doesn't mean it's constant, like you get to a certain threshold and then, boo, it's gone. You know, for some things, you may not really struggle with them again. But, you know, a bitch will show up every now and then unannounced and you might get caught in it. And that's going to happen. And so learning how to react and respond in those moments. So you literally were putting your life back together. You've had OCD for so long, that what does life, what does baseline, what does functioning look like? Because you had snowballed so gradually over time, as we discussed last week. So when you did get to that point where you got the all clear, you got to go home and be with your husband again and say goodbye to Hop, what was that like? I mean, let's even talk about the plane flight, first of all, because the plane flight getting there was hell. But surprisingly, not as hellish as usual. So maybe you are fixed. Oh, shit. What did, are we making a mistake? What was the plane flight even trying to leave and go back to, to Oregon like? Yeah. So about a month or maybe a touch over a month into the program, I did what they call a therapeutic absence, where basically it's like, all right, y'all, you've been doing this for a minute. Let's send you home for a week and see how it goes. Like test run, real mm-hmm. life. So I had done that, I guess, in like the second week of April. And so I had done flying back on my own and then flying back to Houston for the last like month. Mm-hmm. I leaked all the way to the airport. And it, I mean, yes, there was so much anticipatory anxiety around all the things. 
having a heart attack. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I'll never forget. Also, that when I was at the Houston airport to go on my therapeutic absence, the like, you know, the, what do you call that? Not the escalator, but the moving walkways. Uh huh. I'm walking to my gate and there's like all these like cardiology ads of like their heart stops, but we didn't. That like, you know, taping this. I'm like, who put this on here? Who ad hop bought this ad? Like, the OCD animals are going in like elf on the shelf style, just trying to polarize. I love it. So I had done a therapeutic absence, delightfully enough. New things, new content popped up, like more of an existential theme. Dissociation esque, like stuff. So, like, what if I'm dissociating with life is unreal? Just the delightful stuff. And so I came back, and that was also fantastic because I love when new content pops up because I feel like that's also a fan favorite thing for people with OCD is that like you get comfortable with one theme like I've got this I know how to do it but then when a new content pops up it's like oh my gosh mm. this is interesting this is different this time is different uh-huh. right mm-hmm. and so it was a fantastic opportunity I'll call it out of like spite now, with new content, I learned how to do the ERP dance. It was the same dance, different partner. But right. still, they moved. And so I got to come back to hop, watch Groundhog Day for a damn week straight. hate <laughs> Groundhog Day. And then all the way, I mean, when it was time to leave hop, I'm, in, I'm not going to lie. Like, I love Adrian. I love my husband. But I did not want to go home. You know, I freaking love that yellow house. Like, the people there, they knew me. And, you know, when we talk about like getting back to baseline and what does that look like? It was like, that's a great question. What is my baseline? OCD has controlled my entire life. Mm-hmm. I have had some periods I've thrived, like with OCD, with no treatment. I moved to the Pacific Northwest. I got my master's degree. I got married. I did a ton of shit. And so it wasn't like I hadn't been living beforehand, but in a lot of ways I hadn't been living beforehand because OCD always had its grasp on everything and I just didn't even realize how much of it in my like identity had got woven together yeah I really like the kind of image of it popped up in my mind of a you know a caterpillar becoming a butterfly because it's Mm -hmm. such a transformational thing when you've been living with this in some capacity for most of your life going, how do I even move? How do I do things, let alone new things like fly that I couldn't do before, but even walking. Walking's different for a caterpillar as it is for a butterfly, and yet they're one of the same. And so being able to go through that transformation, and I I had shared something on, I think it was on Facebook, on OCD Family Podcast, about to become the butterfly from the caterpillar, you have to reduce to just a pile of goo and You know, so if you just feel disgusting, like a pile of goo under a blanket right now, that's okay because you may still be and can always still transform. And so this butterfly analogy, I think, is really nice, but it is scary. It's really scary to go, I don't know how to be a butterfly. And my whole past life was about knowing and feeling Like, I need to know 100%, if not 1,000%, what it meant to be a caterpillar. And so this is, it's definitely a struggle, but you got that first taste going home for that week and then coming back and working on that, leaving, I would imagine, would be hard when you feel like they get me and I get me for the first time ever. And we went through this experience and now we're just going to go. 
Go where? Yeah, not looking forward to that, to say the least. And I actually, over this last summer in July, I presented at the IOCDF conference in Denver with my therapist from HOP. Me and her did a presentation on the HOP journey and my health OCD and all those things, specifically around health anxiety. And I forgot I had said this during treatment. So when she said during the presentation, I was like, ah, yeah, that's a good one. During my, you know, goodbye party, we can call it. That might be a stretch, but like my ceremony. I don't know. Apparently, I wrote out this script or this like kind of statement in that at the end of it, I said that basically with leaving HOP, I was so sad and so scared to leave HOP, but that I was leaving with myself. Mm -hmm. Like, I have to let this go. I have to lean in. And like, I love all those people so much. And that like experience was life changing. And I'm losing that. I'm not going to live in Houston, the old house, but I get to bring myself home. Mm -hmm. And that's way to skip the ball. And frankly, despite all the boxes I had checked in my life thus far, which were really important things I really cared about, I felt like for the first time in my life, I was going to be like, scared shitless, but I was going to move forward in my career, in my relationships, in my life as my true self. And there was a lot of fear of, am I going to be able to actually do that? What is that going to look like when push comes to shove? What does it look like to show up as my true self? Mm -hmm. And to be frank, I don't know how much I've been able to do that, especially in my career. That mm -hmm. has been a really tricky thing that my OCD had really latched onto. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like I've done work work. Like I felt like I was a good therapist before as far as like I loved working with teens, but OCD had such a quench on, I mean, everything really. So. Right. So you went out with you for the first real time in who knows how long. You flew home. You went to Portland, which is a beautiful, gorgeous place, a very multifaceted, creative, mm -hmm. exploratory community. And you are your kind of baby self here getting out there. So let's talk a little bit about this as you were coming out of treatment, because I think it's helpful for people to have a perspective. And then also how scary it was to step down and what that meant for you to go from six hours of ERP a day to live in your alley life. I mean, what does that mean? And take us through that if you would. Yeah. Well, I was ready to live like that. Yeah. A while looking back, I mean, like, holy shit, Allie. In December, you graduated with your master's. January, February, you were in psychological hell. Like basically agoraphobic, like not leaving the house. March, April, you were in residential treatments. And by May, by June, I was a full-time crisis clinician doing mobile response, driving around the county, going to the hospital all the time, taking clients to the ED, like doing risk assessment. I was I really touched on all my fears mm -hmm. by the actual job I chose doing, you know. 10-hour ships of crisis intervention. Mm -hmm. I leaned in. I mean, I remember like during one of my exit conversations with the program director at HOP, I was talking to her about like, okay, I just don't, you know, you like she had lived experience with OCD. I have lived. And so I was like, how do I do this? Like, how, what do I do? Like, I want to do this right, which she probably, of course you do. At least. <laughs> she told me about, you know, choosing her postdoc, kind of like knowing mm -hmm. that like she might not be thrilled about it. And so I always had, like, I always loved working in crisis. So part of it was just like, I, I'm really familiar with it. But 
also choosing that job. I was like, damn, Al, you are signing up to intentionally go to the hospital and drive around. And, and not eat. for you, but to see this shit go down. Right. Absolutely. Like not checking yourself in the hospital, taking other people and seeing them in oh crisis. God, and sometimes they make it and sometimes they don't. Yeah. I mean, geez, those nurses must have been like, what's going on? Is this the same queen that was asking for an EKG three times a week and now she's in here and she's holding the clipboard? Oh, yeah, you're like, no worries. My Apple Watch actually will give me an EKG right. now. And it was also, though, being able to return to your values. You had a passion of working yes. with youth. You had already had experience not only dealing with your own crisis, but also with other people. And so getting to return to that and saying, OCD, screw you, trying to keep me from a field that is honestly a very high burnout field and you really need to have a gifting to be able to work in or you are going to really really suffer and even even if you love it can get to a burnout point and so being able to go it's my value to want to be able to work here but also because I know OCD will get triggered I'm going to work here I mean that is hardcore and absolutely like go big or go home and you did both you went big and you went home (laughs) right Oh, well, just prefer to stay big and stay in Houston, which is hard to believe because I love Portland. Like, I That was always my childhood dream was to end up out here. And here I am. Here you are. Living the dream, Allie. Look at that. And also there was like, you know, uh, there was this huge gigantic fear with my hot folks of like, am I ever going to find community like that ever again at home? Like, you know, mm-hmm. as you can imagine, being in the play with OCD, I had only been in Oregon for two years and all, almost all of it was like, yeah, either plagued by the plague or OCD, right? Right. And so I didn't really have many. I mean, I had a few very good connections, but not a community. Mm-hmm. And so I choose also every damn day to show up and be a crisis clinician and go to the ED and do and drive around the, the county. But also I had to choose to show up as myself to my coworkers. Which I did alarmingly well. Yeah. It didn't very long for me to show up as my true self. And so, you know, it only took like two months or three months in to show up in Halloween a full blown banana suit recording TikTok dances, which they weren't thrilled about, but they got over it. So I showed them as myself and like, yeah, a year into that job, I had a whole new racist family. Yeah. Like I just continued to reap the fruits of like living up pain in the ass labor Mm -hmm. that OCE made so treacherous, but I'm living. You are living. You are living. And I think that is a really great point. There can be a lot of fear and some of it, and I hear this a lot in treatment and even from people trying to understand that may or may not have OCD themselves, but just trying to understand OCD. And they're like, but, I, I, you know, I, I don't get it. I mean, it, it makes sense, though, if you had, like, heightened fear during the pandemic. Like, it was a scary time. The whole world was impacted by it. It's legitimate. And it's like, all of it's legitimate, you guys. It's all yeah. legitimate. Your body having a fight, flight, or freeze response is legitimate, whether you as the peanut gallery can understand how that link got there or not. You know, it's legitimate. And so... You fought for your life and you fought on the battle lines for your life and you feared you might never find camaraderie like that again. And during one of the most isolating times in this century, in the world, you Mm -hmm. found community again. You found community at Hop. You found community with your crisis crew. So getting into crisis, 
that was one of the ways that you helped to push back at OCD and reclaim some of your stock and your life and your values back. Can I ask, how did it affect things in your relationship with your husband? Because your husband had been married to OCDU and you're coming back and you're mourning the loss and grieving the loss of what you did gain in Hop. What was that like coming back into the marriage, having some new skills, but also having some old patterns probably created from life before treatment? So if you don't mind and you don't have to go any further, you can make a girl in mind and I'll be like, OK, then moving on. But, you know, to the extent that you're comfortable, how did that mm -hmm. uh, impact your marriage? Yeah. So let me tell you, my husband is like, I married him for many reasons, but he is one of the kindest, most considerate, accommodating humans, right? And it's like, that's why I married him because that's who he is and it's like his values, right? Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of unlearning and relearning what it means for him to be that terrific human and be accommodating without accommodating my OCD. Mm. Well, it is, I mean, and I talk, have conversations with parents with kids with OCD, the same conversation of what does it look like? What does it mean to show up, to be present, to be supportive without rescuing, fixing, saving, or trying to like, yeah, stop the person from experiencing discomfort. Mm -hmm. And it's such a dance. And mm -hmm. so learning for Adrian, like, ah, damn. I know exactly what it looks like when she is having heart palpitations, she's hyperventilating to get in the car and get to the emergency room 10 minutes flat. I know what that looks like. I know what it looks like to sit in the lobby and for her to help her with these things. Um, but what does it look like to do the opposite of that, especially when my OCD really wants that? Mm -hmm. And I mean, honestly, I think I would say personally, I fall on the other side of the spectrum where like I can teeter on the perfectionism slash compulsion about not engaging in compulsions. Yeah. What is like freaking inception shit? I, or, like, I mean, inception. That's I love it. Well, I will say, dare I lean into your great way of categorizing this, but it's a fan favorite. Perfecting the OCD, like I'm going to be, you know. I, it's okay. It's okay if I make mistakes. Translation, zero mistakes made. <laughs> yep, right. And it's like, oh, and like compulsively doing exposures. Oh, that's a fun one. Like my therapist now on the, you know, I went back to my same outpatient therapist who I started with. I resumed with her when I came back to Portland. And so now, does she call it? So I also love like Norwegian act into the work I do with myself and with others. It's like, I'm going to live my best values-based life. Blah, blah, blah. I love that, right? That's why I got through treatment. But then sometimes it can take a little twist and mm -hmm. be like, I have to do this because it's my values. Being values-based bench, blah, blah, blah. And I'll like, like do things out of like fear of like OCD getting controlled, not doing things fully. And so it's not like my husband is like, oh, honey, how about we lean into the discomfort? But more so it's like all these things that took up so much time and mental energy mm -hmm. he's learning like i mean we're a year and a half deep into the post-top life now but like it was a lot of unlearning how what do we feel that time with instead yeah especially you know? during a pandemic where i mean you in, there were i'm sure plenty of crises to keep you busy during the workday but in those off-duty hours and a lot of things are closed down and yeah. you know you're still trying to mitigate risks with other things with the virus and all that 
it's like, yeah, how do we learn to relate to each other in a way that's not about this? Because as uncomfortable as it was, there was a comfort in knowing what to expect. And I think for so many men, and this can certainly go for women too, so I'm not, you know, excluding here, but men have this sense of wanting to provide and protect for their partner. And so providing and protecting and allowing that person to still feel like they can have that value without feeding the OCD monster, which is so such a hard thing to relearn because you don't even know at this point like exactly what that's going to look like. And I think, you know, as for parents, this is the case, but for spouses too, it's like seeing your loved one in distress not only do you want to help reduce their distress, it helps. There's a secondary gain of it reducing your distress about their distress. So how do you both learn to sit with distress and not try to just solve that shit for each other? Like, just to allow it to be and work its course. That's hard. Yeah. And like, you know, at the beginning, be a little punky, where like, Adrian just freaking loves me okay like anyone that knows us knows that guy really like cares about me there was like this dance of like you know being able to just feel like i'm so worried i'm having a heart attack i might die i might swear off the road well if i kill everyone i'm a terrible person blah 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 and him just sitting there i'm so sorry to hear that my loves that sounds really hard <laughs> like he so desperately wants to be like you're not a terrible person blah, blah, blah. you're gonna be yeah. okay but that sounds really uncomfortable oh my goodness so <laughs> you know, also learning how to like do that dance yeah. And so, like, reassuring the so It's also so, like, such a societal norm, mm-hmm. right? It's like, of course, you're not a bad person. I love you so much. What a goodness, you know? And so it's so counterintuitive for any caring person to see someone struggling and be like, that's really hard. And I'm really sorry. And I'm here for you. I'm with you. Right. And, and it versus, like, but what about this? What about this? Yeah. It is, it, you know, it's, it's true, whether it's something to do with mental illness or a physical illness or a really difficult situation, whether it's a hurricane just took out your entire city or whether it's cancer. There is this anxiety, really, I think, even from society of sitting with, yeah, you might die. You could die. You might never recover from this. And... We want to go, oh, no, no, you got to stay positive. Like, yeah, you got this. You can fight. You're a fighter, right? No, no, don't get to that space. Don't get to that space. And so it really is, we talked about it in terms of, you know, postpartum, not that long ago on the podcast of that kind of toxic positivity, but there's that need of, oh, it's okay. It's okay. You're not going to get more than you can handle. It's okay. It's okay. And you're like, oh, no, I got more than I can handle. And you know what? That's all of us. That's all of us. We're all dealing with different things, but there's got to be an answer. Or maybe if you just try this, or maybe if you do that, have you tried this? It gets really, really tricky to not just try to solve that and just allow it and say, I'm going to live my life whether I feel that or not. Like, I'm not going to be defined by that. And that's, that's really tricky. Absolutely. So you guys were able to get back into a space You were able to create community. You're thriving. You are living your life, not OCD's life for you. And again, doesn't mean that you just are living completely free. You still have to drive past cemeteries at times and you still have to face that. That's a daily choice to say, I'm going to choose to live life over OCD's idea of it for me. 
but you've made it here. And speaking of community, I definitely wanted to talk about this. You've created not only through your own personal Instagram, but you and a friend created. And this is so funny, you guys, because before Ali and I started talking, I was looking at this Instagram account. And what is it? Bad bitches, bad anxiety. Is that what it is? That's us. That's you. I'm like, it's either bad anxiety first or bad bitches first. But she and a friend run Bad Bitches, Bad Anxiety. And I love this page. It's hilarious. They use a lot of memes. They just talk a lot about different aspects of anxiety. And so you're very active on your Instagram, but also through this this joint account. So tell us a little bit more about how Bad Bitches came about. And I definitely will be linking to Ellie's Instagram, if that's okay with you, Ellie. And and to bad bitches, because it's uh, seriously, I was just thinking, like, I should reach out to these people and see if I can get them on the podcast. And then I realized, like, the next day I was recording Allie and she was actually one of the two. And I was like, oh, my gosh. One, one of the bad bitches. You're one of the bad bitches, aren't we? Yeah. No, I love it. So tell us more about how this this came about. Yeah, it all started in a yellow house in Houston. So nice. So it's a little hop love. We've got some foundation for that. OK, I love that. Yes, me and my hop crew, we have all stayed very tight. Mm-hmm. Even we're coming up on two years of the hop anniversary almost. And so we went to like the IOCDF conference in Denver over the summer together. We met up just as a crew for Lina. And then me and Halima is the other half of Bad Bitches, Bad Anxiety. We're roomies during a part at Hop. And afterwards, you know, there was this gigantic atmosphere of like oh my gosh i love these people so much and you know when you leave summer camp I'm mentally ill summer camp <laughs> i mean looking at looking back like maybe all summer camps a little bit mentally ill but okay but yes you left you you guys connected on this and so me and halima have stayed very much so in touch and we've been talking about doing an instagram or something like that for a while and so yes in the last few months we've started to take on more time where bad bitches but also very busy bad bitches with bad anxiety you know but the nice part is that when one of us is just absolutely swamped the other can so that's right teamwork makes the dream work there and we just are really passionate about like in treatment in real life like with severe ocd and that's the point that we had to go out the hub humor has been how it's it's my value it's one of my greatest values and same with Halima we just love to cackle when we did even at the peak of our anxiety where we're like oh my gosh we are down here in treatment we were cackling through the whole thing mm-hmm. I've got so much footage of our journey and like truly it I mean people talk all the time about like using humor to cope like they make jokes about that like mm-hmm. my therapist says this and I make a joke and they're like oh blah blah blah, blah. Mm-hmm. but i I think using humor is a fantastic way to move through the shit that life throws you. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it feels like it's being perfectly curated by your therapist, the things Mm -hmm. that you're encountering out in the wild, Mm -hmm. and being able to just laugh and be like, this is an absolute shit show sometimes, but it's also beautiful. It's also my shit show. Mm -hmm. And I can be a fantastic bad bitch and have bad anxiety in fact part of the reason why i'm a bad bitch is because i've had bad anxiety and i do all this hard shit anyways mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and so being able to share that like you know there's a place for like straight up kind of clinical information on social media or just like resources but i think there's also 
an audience of people that are like, oh my gosh, what a weird ass life I have where I'm doing these things and having this very specific, unique experience. Mm -hmm. Refreshing is it to see some other folks that are in it with me. Absolutely. And that's the thing. And you've mentioned that you also do therapy, right? You know, you're not just a person working on your mental health. You're also a provider. And I, as a provider and someone with lived experience, always think these are just hilarious. I just look at them and I laugh. It's so relatable. And it is any of my clients listening will be like, yeah, she does love some humor. And it's usually very catered towards very personalized papers. There's a lot of opportunity for improv. But humor can be a really lovely way. It's not always humor, but humor can be a really lovely way to lean into the anxiety and really boss OCD back. And it can feel really empowering. And like you said, having other people, whether they like or follow or whether you're commenting on different posts and you're like, yeah, I thought that was funny too. Realizing like, hey, the only person here walking this road and we can have a little fun with it and there's plenty of places where you can go and get more psychoeducation but to be able to go and laugh it really feels sometimes like the best medicine and it's a huge it's a huge thing something I always like to point out to my clients too is when we can get a laugh I mean we can get a laugh about some really messed up shit right but at the same time it's us battling these thoughts that aren't defining people we are leaning into that distress and we are resisting compulsions. And if we can get a laugh out of it, how empowering. Like when, when you were driving around the neighborhood, you might have hit somebody. Were you ever like, getting a big laugh out of that, right? As you're compulsing. But when you do some of the ERP and some of it is just so wild, I've had numbers of people say to me before, like some of the things you say, I'm just like, holy cow. But usually by the end of the treatment, they're right there with me saying it along with me. And that is so empowering to be able to boss back OCD in that way. And so if you guys are up for a laugh, if you're listening to this, Ali's talked about her kind of her personality and her humor and all of that, which I'm sure you can also get just from listening to this, but I think you'll really enjoy going to bad bitches. And then as well, Allie will sometimes be tagging herself. She's also on, just pulled up the page. She's on the main page. If you are old like me and actually look up Instagram on a computer, you can find that. But you can see that on your phone app as well and stuff. So you can get linked to Allie there. And I'm going to put her handle information. I'm so cool that I called it a handle put her Instagram handles, okay, on your blog, on your blog post. But I I really love that. I love the willingness. And in part, it probably feels really good for the two of you running that, but also just freeing and empowering, but also just for other people to be able to join and go, yep, I'm not alone to feel seen. That is so important. And so I really do enjoy that Instagram And I did totally email Allie like less than 24 hours before we first talked and was like, I'm so like, I was already excited to talk to Allie, but I'm like, you're, you're part of bad bitches. I was just like fangirling over them on my side. So here we go. So thank you for everything that you do, not only doing things like bad bitches and the crisis work you've done for so long or the therapy work that you're doing even right now, but just Even your vulnerability and sharing about your story, I think it really, really helps people know they're not alone, especially when you're like, you're a therapist and you've had master's level education and lots of field training and you're still 
struggling with different things, just like me. It's like, yeah, this can hit anybody. You are living with a brain. You have thoughts. You're going to get intrusive thoughts. And for some us OCD lucky ones, we can get really sticky thoughts. But in the end, I do like to think, and I, I tend to reframe for people, that though we wouldn't ever want this to be the cost at gaining it, and we don't wish this upon anybody, it's pretty freeing for OCD survivors to be able to realize, I can sit, I don't need to solve, I can sit with uncertainty and live my life. Because I think that is something that is really polarizing and difficult for so many people in this day and age, OCD or not. And so having the freedom to go, I don't have to know and that's okay. I, I think I'd like to know. I'd like to think that solves problems, but I know it, it's not. And I don't need to waste my time, my energy, my heart here. And this issue, I can just, I can live. So I, I think that's really great. And thank you so much, Allie, for just everything you've shared, the double commitment. I was like, we were, I was just so swapped up in her story, y'all. I was just like, shit, we ran out of time to talk about Hop. And I'm glad that we were able to come back and visit it right now because I think that's going to be really helpful. Thank you for that. For today's intrusive thought segment, I want to I wanna first just take some time to marinate on what Allie shared about today, because we discussed a lot of different aspects of what treatment looked like and what it felt like for her, as well as returning to her life, her marriage, and diving into post-grad school crisis work, building new community, you name it. There was a dance, as Allie described, not only for herself, but for her husband, for example, and loved ones, in unlearning and relearning what it meant to be her ride or die. I mean, how to love on someone and not their OCD. And we've talked about that a few times over throughout different podcasts. But when we zoom out and recognize these themes, I, I love the bigger picture, you guys, because that's where we can see that we are not alone in our experience of this. How do we do this? How do we do it in a loving way that's still supportive but not accommodating? Oh. We're not alone in navigating these choppy waters. So first things first, let's give ourselves some time and space to let Allie's experience sink in. And then, you know, there was a part two, y'all. <laughs> the second part here is I want you to be real honest with yourselves. I want you to ask what level of care is my loved one or even me if I'm the sufferer participating in now? And is that what I need? For some of us, we're just listening to this podcast and other content and our loved one hasn't ever tried therapy or they've tried it before and felt like it didn't work for them or you've tried it before and it didn't work for you and you don't want them to go through that. I mean, there are vast possibilities and maybe that's where you're at. And while you can't force treatment or participation in it, it reminds me of what we were chatting about at the top of the show. Even if we can't access it right now, it's not working for us right now. It's not an option or doesn't feel like it can be an option right now. We want to continue to prioritize it as one of our main goals. It's the first step and sometimes the first step is half the battle. No argument there. But if that is the level of care needed, if you're thinking about this and doing an honest assessment and going, oh yeah, we really need to 
start some kind of therapy. Let's prioritize that. And if your loved one is like, nope, 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 not doing it, not doing it, for some, particularly parents, for example, that may mean doing a program like SPACE or even your own therapy to learn strategies that can ultimately have a ripple effect on how the brain is learning and reinforcing some of these compulsion loops. Or perhaps the sufferer in your life isn't even treatment resistant, but there's just a general desire to not have to do therapy, not having to get roped into the work, the commitment, the finances, the time that it takes. Fam, I get it. And I think a lot of us get it. But still, prioritizing that goal is worth it because you're worth it. Your loved one is worth it. Or what if you're on that step? You're an outpatient, but you're feeling stuck. Situations continue to ramp up. Have you considered medication support with your doctor or increasing your weekly sessions? Maybe you're once a week. Maybe you could do twice a week. You may not want to do that. And again, I get it. But is it worth even having a conversation, even if you change nothing, nada right now, just having a conversation with your doctor about medication or with your therapist about the frequency of your sessions? It doesn't mean you have to do it. You're the driver in your healthcare, absolutely. But is it worth just having a conversation? Even if you don't want it to be a reality? Yeah, I think there is. There really is. Maybe you're doing all those things and you're still spiraling and OCD is still gaining intensity or it'll take a breather for just a minute, just enough for you to go, oh yeah, no, actually, no, I can do this. And then bam, hits you hard again. Maybe intensive outpatient would be the right fit for you, but it'll conflict with your job or you have to be the one to watch your kids. What are you going to do with your kids if you have to go do this? Or maybe it isn't even available within your state or your province. It's not accessible where you live. And the commitment of traveling just to do this, I mean, that's a pretty big ask. And man, I feel ya. I feel ya, family. I have so many clients that have had or currently need higher levels of care. And it just isn't an option when it comes to OCD and where we're located, where we live. I've had clients have traumatizing experiences in IOP and in inpatient hospitalizations because the staff didn't understand or know what to do with OCD. So instead, clients were just flooded with triggers, their OCD fears, their worst nightmares sometimes being validated before their very eyes out of a misunderstanding or misinterpretation of harm OCD being suicidality or homicidality, for example, just to name a few scenarios. People get in those situations and they spiral more and then they get doped up with psych meds until they're calm or sedated enough for a consistent enough time to go home. And these experiences are real and they can make the thought of going to treatment, let alone a hospital, all the more scary and traumatic. So you're right. It is no small ask. And if you have to travel and somehow arrange things with work or school or lodging or finances to be able to access intensive outpatient, it is absolutely valid to say this is a huge investment, a huge requirement. It's a huge ask. But when folks are at the level of torture and anguish where this level of care is even being recommended, 
let alone considered? The price OCD demands you or your loved one to pay on the daily is certainly no small ask either. As Allie described before, it was a living hell. And so similar statements can be made about going to residential, considering partial, or full hospitalization. It's no small ask. But at the point where your life is on the line, your existence, it's no small ask from OCD either. So what I hope you can hear, family, is while none of these decisions are made lightly, it is so important for us to evaluate what level of care does my loved one need? Do I need? Does my client need? And if they aren't there, then getting there, even if we are only inch by inch getting closer to it, it is still a priority. So as we wrap up, I'm going to ask Allie about this. She ultimately did go to residential and it was ultimately what she needed. And she was able to step back down into outpatient therapy with her previous outpatient therapist. And it was appropriate for her needs. But I wonder, knowing what she knows now, And having had the experience that she has had, I wonder if she had to do it all over again, would she have gone into a higher level of care sooner? So let's listen, because I really love what she had to say. One last kind of question as we wrap up, and I I just thought of this, and you and I were talking a little bit right before I started recording about this too. In hindsight, and you knew at the time you know, that you went to hop, like, I need to do this, and my life is on the line for this. But in hindsight, do you think if you were going through this again, would you have benefited going into residential earlier than when you did? Or did it feel like it really needed to reach a certain kind of threshold before you were like, I'm going to benefit from this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to give a good old classic OCD dan- answer. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, probably looking back as a clinician, looking at my areas of functioning, how good of a time I was having, which was not a very good time. I think I would have benefited from ERP Mm -hmm. 17 years ago. I would have benefited from residential probably at any point through the last however long I've had OCD. But also it was such a unique time in my life. Mm -hmm. It was a unique kind of set of circumstances that led up to it that I have I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how that would have gone if I would have gone months earlier. Probably the same. I probably would still have treated my OCD and gone to life, but also I wouldn't have met the people I met. I wouldn't have, you know, who knows how things would have gone. So, I mean, if I would have known, I would have gone. Like, let's just say it, yeah. it that way. No, and I, I love the, the, that is a great OCD answer. Maybe, maybe not. You know, there might have been benefits to it or not. And what I what I do know is, Sometimes, I know I've experienced this myself, even with like medication, for example, once I've gotten into it and I've, I've, for whatever issues, pride or thinking that I've reached that level or whatever, and needing to reach a certain level based on feedback from the peanut gallery and people that matter to us to get treatment. It's like once you kind of start to get it, you go, "Mm," often you can go, I could have benefited from that earlier if I would have known. But at the same time, you're benefiting from it now. And it's created a beautiful community for you. It's created life for you. And so there's no shame in not going earlier. But the reason that I bring it up is because I think sometimes there's kind of this 
our own kind of cognitive block that we put on things of like, I don't need residential or I wouldn't be high risk enough or maybe this is all my fault anyway. So you got all that going on in OCD as well. But it's just like, yeah, it doesn't have to be complete and utter despair before Mm -hmm. you are worthy of having help. And so if you have a question about it at all, ask it. Why not ask it? Put it out there. You could consult with McLean. You could consult with even an outpatient or an intensive outpatient treatment provider. If you think like maybe I need to ratchet up this level of care or what if I'm not ratcheting it up? And also hopefully you're with a good provider where they're going to admit I think we should consider higher levels of care as well as, you know, I think you're doing pretty well. I think we can kind of back up and lower the level of care. And so having those conversations along the way is important and it's okay. But yeah, whenever you receive help, if you are actually are getting help that it's treating the actual source, if you're getting some evidence-based practice there, like, hey, then you're living your life or you're working towards it. So live. Whatever's happened in the past is what what's happened, but you are worthy. And the point is, we can live. We get to choose to live. And so thank you for that perspective. I really appreciate that. Yes, thanks for having me. You know, I think I would, it's important for me to note that, like, choosing to disclose my OCD, choosing to be on this, having this conversation is just like any of the decisions I've had to make prior with, like, mm-hmm. after call of, like, it's a risk to show up as your true self, to put yourself out there, to put, you know, things on the line like that. It's absolutely a risk. And it's just a risk that I'm honored that I get to, that I choose to take now, right? Yeah. It's an honor to be able to connect with others that have these similar experiences and to take the risk to show up as my true self. And so thank you for having me and allowing me the space to do so. Absolutely. Okay, family. So, Allie, excellent, excellent. What an honor for us to be able to hear her story. She is just amazing that she sees the honor in being able to share. But it really is. It's something she had to fight for. And it was worth it. She's worth it. You're worth it. So again, Happy New Year, and I'm so glad you could join us today. Next week, we are going to be honoring another lived experience voice in Brooke Miller, and I'm really excited to continue to provide space for you, me, all of us to share our stories, our voices, because we are better together. See you next week, fam. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD Family Podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit ocdfamilypodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the download on the family chatter. Oh, yeah. Nothing says family like doing the dance to gain a fighting chance. That's right. I went there. And you can too at OCDFamilyPodcast.com.